Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Open with me to Psalm chapter 51. If you are using one of the Bibles that we've provided, that would be page 325. And um, I'm going to encourage you to just go ahead, if you haven't done this in your life already, I'm going to go ahead and encourage you to just bookmark this psalm for lifetime use. (laughs) Bookmark the whole Bible for lifetime use, but bookmark this psalm in particular uh, because I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you'll probably sin again in your life, and you could use this psalm. You could really use this song. I don't want to be dramatic, but sometime this week in my preparation and preparing this sermon and praying and studying and all those things, I came to the conviction that if, if we truly believe and sincerely pray and by the grace of God live Psalm 51, we will see revival. I know that sounds dramatic, but I've come to really believe that. I think we'll see revival personally. And I think all great sweeping revival happens when revival happens in the hearts of a lot of people. And so revival always starts in our own heart. And so I really genuinely believe that at the very least we will see personal spiritual revival. Um, And... If all of us are experiencing that, then we will see a corporate revival um, by the true belief and sincere prayer and earnest living of Psalm 51. I don't, I know everyone here, but I don't know everything that may be um, tucked away in all of our hearts. And so there may be some here who walked in carrying the guilt of past sins. Um, I'm talking about saved people, children of God, yet crushed under the weight of shame and condemnation, tormented and taunted by the enemy over something you did or didn't do, something you said or didn't say, either recently or in your distant past and you just can't get over that hump and you can't seem to get free of the shame and condemnation of sin, I want you to walk out of here transformed. I was praying even this morning uh, that those who walked in today carrying that burden would walk out of here without it. And I think Psalm 51 will help us get there. So let's read. Verse 1 says this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I, I just, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, God. I pray, Lord, for any who may have walked in here this morning, dragging, carrying, buried under the weight of guilt and shame and condemnation. And I pray, God, today that you would teach us to set that down and walk out of here without it. And I pray that you would do that in your grace and in your abundant mercy by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, we have so much ground to cover as usual. Okay, I'm gonna, I, we need to get it all done. Okay, we gotta get it all in. This message went from 12 points to four points to seven points to it's all over the place, okay? Uh, there's so much here. I'm trying to figure out how to kind of navigate this song. Let me, let me just start with the title. We didn't share this when we first <clears throat> read it here, but um, there's a title given to this song, an explanation given to this psalm. And I said, every time that the psalms give us an explanation, we better pay attention to it, okay? Not every psalm has a header. Not every psalm has an explanation. This one does, and so it's there for a reason. And, and it is this. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So we know that David wrote it. And this was uh, given to the choir master. When, this was a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. That means there's a story there's a background to this psalm. And the psalm writer here, David, wants us to know what the background is. Flip with me real quick or look in your notes at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. I'm going to give you a quick, the Bible's going to give us a quick explanation of what this is talking about. It says this, 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, King David, sent Joab. And he sent his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So this is the background. This is what's going on. There's actually a lot more there. King David sins with Uriah's wife. He takes Uriah's wife to himself. He lays with her and she becomes pregnant as a result of that. What David decides to do then is he tries to then bring Uriah home from the battle and get him to kind of have a little R&R. And used to spend a couple days with your wife and then go back out to battle so that when he finds out that she's pregnant, he will think the child is his. That didn't work because Uriah was an honorable man. Uriah came home from the battle. He couldn't understand why he was there for a little R&R while the rest of the men were out fighting. And so he refused to go into his wife. He slept outside and said, I can't do such a thing while all the other men are out fighting. And so David has to come up with a backup plan. And David's backup plan was to send Uriah with a note in his hand back out into the battle uh, to the commander, a note that says, we got it. We gotta do something here. We, I want you to attack and I want you to go into the heat of battle and then I want you to withdraw and leave Uriah there to be killed. Uriah delivers his own death warrant. He does what the king demands and he takes in his hand this letter to the front lines, to his commander. The commander does as the king has ordered, gets into the heat of battle and withdraws, leaving Uriah there to be killed. 
Uriah's wife Bathsheba mourns, and then <coughs> David takes her to be his wife. So a short while later, <coughs> Nathan is sent by God to David. And Nathan tells David this parable, and he, he tells this parable to get David to uncover the sinfulness of his own sin. So he tells it like it's something that happened to somebody else in a different circumstance. And, and I'll let you read that. It's in 2 Samuel. But he tells this parable, and David, uh, the, the parable works. David condemns himself. He says, oh, whatever that, whoever that man is, he must pay. He's done a wicked thing. Nathan says, the man is you. David was cut to the heart, recognized his sin, acknowledged his sin, and repented. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. And David does at least seven things here in his prayer that I want to point out that are instructive for us. We're going to go through these as quickly as possible, but they're important and they apply to us. So let's pause real quick and understand that this psalm then applies to anyone who has ever sinned. Okay? So if you're in this room and you don't need this psalm, you are excused. No, it's all of us. Romans would tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so I want you to understand that this psalm has direct application to every single one of us here this morning. David does seven things. Number one, he acknowledges and confesses his sin to God. He acknowledges and confesses his sin to God. Look at verse three. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's saying, I can't get it out of my mind. It's there, it's always there. You have one of those? You have many of those? You have one of those from 10 years ago? You got one of those from 10 days ago? How can you get to a place? How can we get to a place? I hope we answer this question by the end of today. How can we get to a place where our conscience is even cleansed of sin? He says, my sin is always before me. He acknowledges it. There it is, God. I'm not trying. It's there. I live with it. It's all the time. It's constantly before me. Verse four, he says something kind of crazy to us. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil. And he's saying, I've done what is evil. I've sinned. He's acknowledging his sin. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Really? Against you only? Really? The man is dead. A wife mourning for the loss of her husband. A child will die in the process. David and Bathsheba's child will die through this. David's sin has hurt an awful lot of people and he says, against you only have I sinned? Back in 2 Samuel, look at what Nathan said when he confronted David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And look at David's response in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Against the Lord. Listen, the point here is not that others weren't hurt or impacted. Of course they were. The point is that all sin is ultimately against God. It's ultimately against God. What makes sin, sin is that it's against God. It's not just fracturing a social norm or breaking a rule of society. It's an affront to God and to his word. So that's why Nathan said to him, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And why David acknowledged that my sin was ultimately against God. We need to understand that because otherwise we'll think, well, if the society or culture or other people are approving of my sin, then it's no longer sin. And that's not true. Sin is sin because it's an affront to God. Sin is a sin because we, we despise the word of the Lord. 
So all sin is ultimately sin against God. If you could get the rest of the world to agree that what you did was not a sin and be okay with it, if it's violation of God's word, it's still a sin. If it's in violation of God's will, it's still a sin. All sin is a sin because it's an affront to God and David acknowledges that. Verse five, he goes on, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. The word will hurt us before it heals us right now. So we're in the hard part, okay? We're gonna get to healing, but it's like, it's like if, you, if you fell down as a kid, we're riding your bike and you fell down and you, and you scraped up your knee really bad and you got gravel in the wound and it started to kind of scab over, but there's gravel stuck in there. What, what is a good mom gonna do? going to take that wound. She's not just going to put a band-aid on it, is she? Uh-uh. She's going to come and she's going to scrub it. She's going to clean it out and it's going to hurt. And then she's going to bandage it so that it will truly heal. So I, I, can, I can see that we're, we're in the hard part right now. The hard part is acknowledging and confessing our sin to God. Okay? He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So this doesn't lessen sin. He's saying, I was born in sin. I've always been this way. I was born with a sinful nature. But this doesn't lessen sin. We, we, we say that sometimes like to minimize sin. We go, well, listen, we're, you know, I, I, it's just human nature. I was just, I was just born this way. I've always been this way. It's just the way that I am. It's just how I am. We say that all the time, as if that minimizes sin. No, David's saying, no, no. David's actually acknowledging our deep and complete corruption. He's, he's not saying it as a, to minimize his sin. He's saying it to say, yeah, I have sinned and I'm corrupted with sin. This is what some theologians would call total depravity. We've been, we've been sold this lie, even from many pulpits, even from many Christian pulpits, that we're, that we're good, we're basically good, and we sometimes do bad things. I, that's not scripture. I don't know where we, we get that from pop psychology, but we don't get that from the scriptures. The scriptures don't say that we're basically good and sometimes do bad things. It says there is no one righteous, not one. When, when someone called Jesus good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. So theologians talk about what is called total depravity. That is, we are corrupted in very nature and totally depraved from the womb. We're corrupt to our core and need to be made new, need to be born again. And until we recognize this, I'm spending time here because we need to. If we don't get the diagnosis right, we don't get the proper cure, right? We're going to keep putting Band-Aids on cancer if we don't get the diagnosis right. Until we recognize our deep need for salvation and forgiveness, mercy will seem less beautiful to us. It will seem a little bit less glorious. It won't dazzle us the way that it should. Most people don't give a rip about the love, mercy, and grace of God because they don't think they need it. They're not awestruck or have their breath taken away by the grace and goodness of God's mercy because they don't understand why they Need it, and until we acknowledge the depth of our sin, mercy will not take our breath away. The cure will not dazzle us because we don't believe we're sick. Imagine a doctor came in to a healthy 14 year old boy who never experienced even a cold, was there for a regular checkup, and yep, checkup's great, everything's good, as usual, as it has been since the day you were born, perfectly healthy 14 year old kid. Imagine the mentality of a healthy 14-year-old. And then the doctor says, incidentally, uh, scientists have recently, medical researchers have recently found a cure to cancer. That 14-year-old will probably be pretty stoked and think that's awesome. That's amazing. Whoa, that's cool. 
Imagine that same doctor going into the next room to an elderly woman who is in the final stages of a battle with cancer and sharing the same news with her. We found a cure. Which one do you think will be more dazzled, more awestruck by that news? The one who understands that this cure will save my life. The one who understands how close she is. So, the one who understands how depraved and how corrupted to the very core our very nature is will be the one most dazzled by the mercy and grace of God. When you minimize sin, you minimize grace. When you diminish the darkness of sin, you dull the brightness of the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. David doesn't do that here. He doesn't try to minimize or justify his sin to God. He doesn't say, hey, God, you know, I know I sinned, but come on, man, you know I was born that way, you know? He acknowledges and confesses it to God. Number two, he pleads for God's mercy and forgiveness. Look at verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Have mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Look at verse nine. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David is pleading for God's mercy and forgiveness. He's saying, please, Lord, I know I deserve judgment, but withhold judgment from me. Withhold judgment. Remove my guilt. Show me mercy. Don't let the judgment that I deserve, don't let it hit me. That's mercy. Give me mercy. And blot out my sins. Remove it from me. What nerve. Why does David have the nerve to ask a holy, perfect God to withhold judgment from him and to show him mercy and to blot out his transgressions? Why does David have the nerve to ask this? Because he knows something about God. Because he believes something to be true about who God is. What does he believe? It's right there in verse one. He believes that God is steadfast in love and abundant in mercy. Notice he does not pray, have mercy on me, God, because I deserve it. He didn't say that. He said, have mercy on me because you are abundant in mercy. He did not pray, forgive me, God, because I love you. He prayed, forgive me, God, blot out my transgressions because you are steadfast in love. He appeals to the character of God and not his own character when he appeals for mercy and forgiveness. Mercy. And forgiveness. I one of the joys of this week for me was sitting down with my son. I sat down to uh, to prepare this message. I think probably last Sunday evening um, was when I first started. And I sat down with my Bible and my notebook, and I was just you know going to read and pray and kind of jot down my first initial thoughts. And, El- and Elijah, my eleven year old, comes and he brings his Bible and a notebook, and he says, "Dad, can I?" Um, can I help? Can I be with you? And one thing about my son, I, I, he's, God has blessed him with tremendous, for his age especially, just insight and kind of depth of thinking into the, the scriptures. And most people, would, I, I told him, I've sat down across the table with many adults and tried to ask leading questions and get them to kind of mind the depths of a verse. 
And sometimes he just goes there naturally. It's just a, a gift I'm seeing God kind of develop in him. And so we're, we're sitting there like verse one would normally be one of those things where maybe I'd sit across the table at breakfast with an adult and try to lead them into what it says about God's mercy and, and forgiveness and love. And, uh, but most people would read verse one and go, mercy and love. Okay, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy, blot out all my transgressions. And my son at 11 years old says last Sunday night, he says, you know, you know what I love, Dad? It, is that it, it doesn't, he says, he says, it's why David can ask that. He's the one that pulls this out for me. He says, it's, he says have mercy because you are a God of mercy. And then he says, and you know what else I love, Dad? He doesn't just say mercy and love. He says steadfast love and abundant mercy. And just pushed my chair back and just went, this, this is my 11-year-old who looked at verse 1 of Psalm 51 and, and saw it. He saw it. He saw our hope. He saw our only hope. It's not in our performance and it's not in our behavior. It's in the steadfast love and the abundant mercy of God. He saw it. And I just praise God. David believed that God was steadfast in love and abundant in mercy. Why did David believe that? Well, he probably knew Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when the Lord appeared and described himself to Moses, and God described himself this way, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know how I know David knew that verse? Because he quotes it two times in the Psalms at least. Psalm 103, verse 8, and Psalm 145, verse 8. Verbatim, David quotes that. He says, God, you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David knew this about God, and that's why he had the nerve in his sin to say, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. Not based on anything in me, but based on everything in you. <clears throat> Do you believe this? Let's get very, very personal. Do you believe that when it comes to your sin, the God that you serve wants to pour out on you and show to you his steadfast love Love that doesn't quit. It's steadfast. It is faithful. And his abundant mercy. Not just, oh, hopefully enough mercy to cover this one. No, no, no. Abundant mercy. Abundant. That means more than you need. More than you need. Amen? Number three, he asks God to cleanse him from his sin. He asks God to cleanse him from his sin. Look at verse two. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David doesn't just want to be forgiven for his sin. He wants to be cleansed from his sin. Do you see the distinction there? He doesn't just want to be forgiven. He wants to be cleansed and purified from his sin. He wants to be pure. He wants his sin to be removed from him and to walk in purity before the Lord. That's a distinction because many, many people want forgiveness, but they don't want cleansing. Many times in my life, I have sought forgiveness and God's had to come and come, but do you want me to remove that sin? Or do you want me just to remove the penalty? We like some of our sins. We want to be forgiven for them, but do we want to be cleansed of them? David wants to be pure. Look at verse seven. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a branch 
that was dipped in blood, and it was used by the priest for several things. One of the things was when a house uh, had, had, had had some kind of infectious growth and they didn't know what it was, you couldn't live there, obviously. You couldn't stay there, okay? The house had to be cleaned and utterly purified, and any boards that had been infected had to be pulled, and they would pull it, and they would clean it, and they would purify it. And then after they were convinced that it was completely purified, they would call the priest, he would come and he would check it and verify that it was purified. Once it was verified that that place was completely clean, he would take this hyssop dipped in blood and he would dab it, dab the house to signify this place is clean, you can move back in. David's saying, purge me with hyssop. Clean me out completely. Get to the root of everything in me. Get to the root of my uncleanness, God, and clean it out. And verify that you are the one who has cleansed me. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I love that David isn't just asking for a clean slate. He's asking for a clean heart. Isn't that powerful? You, you see the distinction, don't you? And praise God that in Jesus Christ we have both a clean slate and a clean heart as we yield to the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's the process of discipleship and sanctification being purified and made more and more like Jesus Christ and having the sin rooted out from us. Cleansed thoroughly, he says, verse 2, thoroughly. David isn't just asking for a clean slate. He's asking for a clean heart. And the question is, is that what you want? Do you want not just a clean slate, but also a clean heart? Do you want to be saved from your sin or just from the penalty of your sin? Notice God's forgiveness and cleansing are complete. Complete. When God, this is a point. When God cleanses you, you are clean. He doesn't do a halfway job, okay? When God cleanses you, you are made clean. Look at verse 2. He says, cleanse me thoroughly. Verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop, and what will happen? If you purge me with hyssop, I'll be clean. If you do the work, God, I'll be clean. Verse 7, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. I'm, I'm just bragging on my son again this morning. He's not in here, so I don't get brownie points for this. But, you know, several months ago I had a surgery. <clears throat> and um, I, was, I was a mess after I had a massive headache, uh, kind of on the second day. I was in a lot of pain. I was just a mess. A, a lot of nausea, tremendous headache, and I couldn't. I couldn't function. I was kind of laid out on the couch. My wife had to go to work, and um, my son stayed home from school one, maybe two days, I think, to just take care of me. I'm a grown man, dang near 40 years old, and my 11-year-old boy uh, has me. I'm, I'm laid out on the couch. I got a bowl in front of me. He's making sure I take my medications on time. He's rubbing my forehead. He's singing songs to me. And he said, he knew I read, and I have a devotion time. He says, Dad, where are you reading? Where, where are you in the Bible? And last year I was reading through the Psalms. They said, I think I'm, I was in Psalm 30-something. I said, I'm in like Psalm 30-something. He goes, okay, I'm going to read to you. Is that okay? I said, yeah. So he starts reading the Bible to me. And he, he must have read me from Psalm 30, about 34, 35 to Psalm 60-something. Right in the middle of all that is this psalm, Psalm 51. And every once in a while he'd be reading and he'd stop and he'd say something to me that he just thought was cool or he'd make a comment and then we'd stop and we'd talk about something else and he'd pick up reading again and he'd say something. He had little insights here and there. We got to verse 7 in Psalm 51 and he's reading it to me and he reads, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then he pauses. He goes, you know what's awesome, Dad? And I said, what? He goes, it would be awesome if God said, that he would make us as white as snow. But that's not what it just said, Dad. It said, wash me, 
and I'll be whiter than snow. I can't, we were talking about it this morning. I can't even picture whiter than snow. David knew. He says, if you purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. I'll be clean. I'll be completely clean. Verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. I know that you, God, will do a complete work in me. Verse 7, again, he says, you wash me, and I won't even just be as white as snow. I will be whiter than snow. God, clean me completely. Purge me and cleanse me from my sin. God's cleansing is thorough. And it's not just cleansing you of your sin. Here's what I want to get to, because it's one of the things that we had to get to. Ah, Lord, I'm looking at the time, and I don't know. It's not just being cleansed from your sin. It's it's having a cleansed conscience. Now, I'm going to take a second here. Because I know many people who believe that their sins are forgiven and yet still live with a guilty conscience. Crippled by it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. We have to jump into the New Testament here because we're talking about being cleansed. Says this, but when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God doesn't just want to cleanse you from your sin. He wants to cleanse your conscience from your sin. And so far we've seen David acknowledge and confess his sin to God and ask for forgiveness and cleansing from God. And I have to share, jot down 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, because we see all three of these here. Acknowledgement and confession to God of sin, forgiveness, and cleansing. And here's a promise. It says this in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. It says we're a liar. If you pretend you have no sin, you're lying. And you're deceiving yourself. And then it makes this magnificent promise in verse 9. This is written to believers. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he acknowledges and confesses his sin to God. He cries out for God's mercy and forgiveness. He asks God to cleanse him. Number four, he prays for unbroken intimacy With God. We will try to get through these a little bit quicker. Verse 11, he says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's saying, Don't leave me. Don't leave me, God. I don't just want forgiveness, I want you. I don't just want forgiveness, I want you. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 tells us that our iniquities, our sin, makes a separation between us and God. He says, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. When we sin, we're often like Adam and Eve who begin trying to hide from God. But David's running toward God. And he's clinging to him and he's saying, stay with me. Be near me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't turn your face from me, God. I want closeness and intimacy with you, 
David wasn't just concerned about fracturing a law, but about fracturing a relationship. He didn't just want forgiveness. He wanted intimacy with God. Do you want him to forgive you only or do you want him? One of the most powerful questions I ever heard asked was, if you could have the glories of heaven, no sickness, no sorrow, no tears, eternal life, joy, health, if you could have all of that, Without Jesus, would you take it? It's a convicting question because it gets to the heart of our relationship and desire for God. Do you just want forgiveness or do you want God? He says, cast me not away from you. He didn't just, he says, forgive me, cleanse me, have mercy on me but also don't take your presence from me. I want to be near you. I want to be with you. I don't want to lose this intimacy and fellowship that I have with you. I want it to be unbroken. Number five, he prays for restored joy. He prays for restored joy. Look at verse eight. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with the willing spirit. Sin and shame had robbed David of his joy. It's what guilt and shame and condemnation do to us. Throws a wet blanket over everything and saps every moment of its true joy because it's just always there eating and gnawing at us. So sin and shame had robbed David of his fullness of joy, filled him with sorrow, Scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength, and so he must have been absolutely depleted and sapped of strength. And he prays, restore me, God, to a place of joy. I want joy and gladness again. Uphold me, lift me up, fill me with joy. But joy in what? Joy in what? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me find joy in you, God, and in your salvation. We chase sin because we're looking for joy outside of God. It's really as simple as that. We are pleasure seekers. And we think that true pleasure and joy can be found outside of God. When the psalmist would say, in your presence, God, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, we tend to disbelieve that and think that true pleasure and joy can be found in something outside of God and his salvation. And so every time we sin, it's because we're trying to find joy outside of God, not realizing that our truest joy and pleasure is found in him. There's a quote that's been attributed to G.K. Chesterton. Not sure if that's the right person to attribute it to. There was some question about that. But either way, it's a great quote, and it says this. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. That is, whatever satisfaction or joy or pleasure he thinks he's going to find behind that brothel door is only truly and fully satisfied in his creator. And it's true of every sin you and I have ever committed. We sin because we think we're going to find our fulfillment behind that door. We think we're going to find our joy and true pleasure behind that door. David knows that the true location of his permanent joy is in God and his salvation. And so he prays, restore my joy, help me to find my true joy in you and your salvation so that I don't go chasing it somewhere else. Number six, he prays for a bold spirit of praise. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Sin and sorrow had sealed David's lips. He hadn't praised God as boldly as he once did. He was holding back. 
He says, I can't, I know your goodness, but if my lips are sealed, God, open them. If you deliver me from this blood guiltiness, I know my mouth will open and I'll declare your praises. I will sing aloud of your righteousness and not my own. Having acknowledged and confessed his sin to God and having experienced God's mercy and forgiveness and cleansing and intimacy and restored joy, David now prays that God will open his lips to boldly declare the praises of God. No fear or reservation, just bold, unashamed praise. The best worshipers are those who know how much they've been forgiven. I I, I know a man who is just an expressive worshiper. He will cry, he will will jump, he will spin, he will dance. And I had a conversation with him several years ago and, and, and... in which he said, I know people look at me funny. And I understand why. What they don't understand is what I've been rescued from. (sighs) That kind of praise looks silly to us because we don't understand the depth of forgiveness that that person has embraced in Christ. When we get it, we'll jump too. When we get it, those who are forgiven much love much. That's what Jesus said. The psalmist is saying, oh, you forgive me. You forgive me of this, God? Adultery and murder and lies and and God, you forgive me of this? My mouth will sing aloud of your praise. I will declare your righteousness. The best worshipers are those who understand just how much they've been forgiven, just how sinful and broken they are, and just how brilliant the diamond of God's mercy shines on them. David says, because you've forgiven me and cleansed me and restored me completely, I will praise you boldly. Number seven, final thing. He prays that God will use him to draw other sinners to salvation. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is part of why I believe this psalm will lead us to revival. Because having experienced the type of mercy and cleansing and restored joy that David has just experienced, and then he says, and then I'll teach transgressors your ways and other sinners will be converted to you too. When they hear of your great mercy and your grace, when I teach them about you, and about the fact that you are a God full of grace and mercy and compassion, they'll be converted to you, he says. It's amazing to me the heart of David because he's not content to just be forgiven and cleansed and in close relationship with God and filled with joy and bold in praise. He's not content with any of that stuff. He wants it all, but he wants more. He's not content until others experience the joy of forgiveness and cleansing and salvation. So he promises to teach others about God's love and mercy and prays in faith that God will save them. This is what God does. See, you think God can't use you because you're jacked up, because you've sinned. As if there's a human being God's ever used that hasn't sinned, aside from his son, Jesus. This is what God does. You think God can't use you because you've blown it so bad, and yet David proves otherwise. God turns our brokenness into beauty. God takes broken people and uses them to draw other broken people to him for his glory. Or as someone once said, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. (laughs) So this is his prayer of repentance. Right here at the tail end, he makes a stunning and nearly scandalous observation and it is this God 
doesn't want your payment. He wants your repentance. God doesn't want your payment. He wants your repentance. Put that on repeat in your head if you're still trying to pay for your own sins. God doesn't want your payment. In fact, your money's no good there. You don't have enough. The bill's too large. God doesn't want your payment. He wants your repentance. Look at verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering, the sacrifices of God. What you want, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. God doesn't want to make you pay. Gosh, we love to pay, don't we? We love to pay. Oh, we do. We want to get our consequences. We, we think we don't, but then we actually really do. We, we, want, we want to pay. Yeah. We want to feel bad enough for long enough so that somehow we've paid for our own sin. We, okay, yeah, I deserve that. And all that is is just a great way to avoid Jesus. I'll pay for it. No, no never mind. Step aside, Jesus. I'll pay for it. Thanks anyways. You don't have to pay for it. I'll pay, I'll pay for it. Paying for your own sin is just another way to avoid Jesus. Yeah. Someone once said there's a few great ways to avoid Jesus. One, we can run from him into sin and be very, very, very bad. Okay? Or we can try to be very, very, very good and try to never sin so that we don't need his forgiveness. I'm doing it all right. Right? So that's like the, the prodigal son runs from God and is very, very, very bad. The older brother runs for God and is very, 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 very good and thinks that his goodness has earned him something. There's a third way to try to avoid Jesus, and that is to understand that you are a sinner, there are consequences to pay, and yet try to pay for them yourself. That's just another way to avoid the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are trying to pay for your own sins, you are still avoiding Jesus and you've missed the glorious truth of the cross. Back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Look at what happened when Nathan confronted David and David repented. Look at what happened. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Are you kidding me? That's outrageous. Some of you, some of you are outraged maybe. Hearing that, how can God just look at him? Listen, a man is dead, a wife is mourning, a child will die in this process. How can God just look at him and go, oh, I put away your sin. I just pass over it. It's outrageous. That's why some people say it's scandalous. How, how can that even happen? How is that possible? How can God just pass over David's sin? This is an important, we have to answer this one before we leave. I know we're late, but we have to answer this one before we leave. Why? Because the answer to this question tells us how God can pass over your sin and how God can pass over my sin. How, how is it possible? The answer to this question is the core of our salvation. Our salvation hinges upon the answer to this question. How can God just put away David's sin and still be a just God? who punishes sin, who follows through on his promise to punish sin. How can he do it? Romans chapter three, verse 23 through 26. Please highlight this in your Bible, even if you're not a highlighter, because this is your life. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is made right, put right with God by his grace 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. He put forward his son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation by his blood to be received how? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. How could God pass over David's sin? Romans 3 just answered that for us. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just because he punished sin in Jesus and the justifier of the one who what? Has faith in Jesus. How can God, how could he just pass over David's sin and still be a just God? Because David's sin would be punished in Jesus. The price would be paid. David looked to God in faith, not understanding everything about the name of Jesus or the cross. He understood partially. He saw through a mirror dimly, but he looked to God in faith, believing that God was somehow in his abundant mercy and steadfast love able to pass over his sins. And God looked upon that faith and looked at the cross, the coming cross of Christ and said, okay, I'll take that faith and call you clean and call you perfectly pure and justified in my sight. At 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus God knew that David's sin would be punished in Christ at the cross. And so he was able to look at David in his sin and say, I passed over that. You shall not pay for it. You shall not die. My son will pay the price. What does that mean for us? Well, I hope you already see it. David looked forward to the cross, though it was hazy to him. We look backward to the cross, and it should be crystal clear that Christ hung on that tree. Spikes in hands and feet, broken body, bloodshed for the removal of our sins and the cleansing of our conscience. Our sin has been punished in Christ. There is payment for your sin. Christ made it. That's how God is just, because he punished sin like he said he would, and the justifier of everyone who is his child. And how do we get in on that? This is where you're going to struggle with disbelief. By faith. <laughs> you do nothing. Nothing to earn forgiveness. Except believe that he's done it all. that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in themselves? No, in Jesus, in Jesus. God doesn't want your payment. He wants your faith. He wants your repentance. He doesn't want us to pay. He wants us to change. He wants us to be transformed by his radical grace. Grace is the only thing that can transform you from the inside out. It's, 
all your behavior modification is going to fail. It's going to fail. You're just attempting to be better and do better. It's going to fail. It's going to fail you every time. You can live your whole life just trying harder, and you're not going to try hard enough. It's not going to be enough. You're still going to fall short. You're still going to fail. It said here in one of these verses, verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. That's saying be honest with yourself. Just be honest. God, you just want me to be honest with myself. And that is that I am corrupted to the core and I can't. I won't on my own. I just can't. You can give me a thousand second chances and I'll blow them all. So my faith is not in me or my ability to live up to a second, third, fourth millionth chance. It's not in me. My faith is in you and in your steadfast love and in your abundant mercy and in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's my only hope. It's my only hope. So I throw myself at your feet in faith, believing that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we... By faith, just go, okay. I'm cleansed and forgiven completely and a clean slate and a clean heart and a clean conscience because of what Jesus has done. And that changes you. From the inside out, not from the outside in. Now you want to follow God, this God who's that gracious and that good. Now you want to live differently. Now you want to change. And are you going to fall and stumble? Yep. That's why I said bookmark Psalm 51. Bookmark it. Repent and trust in Jesus and do it again. And do it again. Every time you fall, do it again. I repent, I turn from my sin, and I trust in I taught my kids how to repent. It was the simplest thing. I said, okay, pretend that wall is sin and you're walking towards it. And when I say repent, I want you to stop, turn around, and run and jump up in my arms. That's trusting in Jesus. So repentance is turning from your sin, changing your mind, but we can't repent without trusting in Jesus. Because repentance without trusting in Jesus is just behavior modification. I'm just going to turn from that sin and I'm going to try to do better. No, it's never going to work. You have to repent and you have to trust in Jesus for salvation. So instead of running from him, do like I taught my kids. Repent. Oh, turn and jump up into daddy's arms. Jump up into daddy's arms. Verse 17 Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Other translations say you will not reject. Listen, so I'm closing with this. God will not reject. That's what the verse just said. God will not reject or despise the one who comes to him in humble repentance. He's not going to turn you away. What he'll do is he'll take you up in his arms and he will lavish upon you his abundant mercy and steadfast love and complete cleansing. And he will restore you and he will fill you with joy in him. And he will make you bold in praise and he will send you back out to share this beautiful news with anyone who will listen. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is full of mercy and grace, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, for all generations. A holy and perfect and just God who cannot just turn a blind eye to sin or look away from it or brush it under the rug, but who has, who has punished it, who has brought justice. And so we look to the cross of Jesus Christ 
and worship. And we know that because of his broken body and his shed blood, we are cleansed of our sin. Our hearts are cleansed. And I pray, God, that this morning our consciences would be cleansed of all sin. My prayer is that right now, if you haven't already, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you reach into every mind and heart and you pull out condemnation. Every child of yours, I pray that walked in here, God, with a weight and a burden drops it right now at your feet, at the feet of the cross and leaves it there where it belongs and walks out of here whiter than snow. I pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.